evening, everyone. Um, I've made a, I've made an executive decision. From now on, whenever I see a conservative or Republican, same difference, um, uh, on the internet, saying something stupid, I'm just gonna like reply with a gif of somebody rolling their eyes. That's all they get. Just a rolling eye. Just just stop giving them your words. Just start posting pictures. Think how dumb you think they are. That's just my advice. It was, I just did it, and it was actually cathartic. It was, huh, that was nice. It was very nice. Anyways, Julie's on the line, and we're going to talk about um, uh, readability and um, uh, stuff. And uh, just, you know, we're going to talk. Aren't we? Maybe bitch. We're going to talk. Yeah, maybe bitch. There, there could be some bitching. There there could be. Because I've been, if you if you follow me on Facebook, if you're my friend on Facebook, and I don't know why you wouldn't be, um, you might have noticed that I've been a little bitchy today. She's in the mood. She's in the mood. And I took my Lexapro. I promise. I didn't. <laughs> you need to. <laughs> I might need to. Take your pills. Take care of your brain. If your brain doesn't make it, it's perfectly okay to buy it. <laughs> I was reading. Well, I'm not today. saying you need to take it, Lady Holder. I'm just. Well, I don't. I'm not on it. I don't feel like years ago. It didn't. It didn't agree with me. I think other I really, things now, like really big Xanax, <laughs> like a really big Xanax. Sometimes you just need a Xanax. Um, and you I, would like to, I would like to to say yet again, um, for those of you who uh, might find yourself in need of a medical procedure, when someone offers you Valium, you always say yes, because if they're offering they you Valium. They're about to do something really fucked up to you, to you, and you don't want to do that sober. That's right. I mean, if they're offering it to you from the jump, they're not even waiting for you to ask for it. It is about to go bad. <laughs> just about to get real. Out. Take the volume. Just saying. I uh, I got my boob checked recently. Get your boobs checked, ladies and gentlemen. It's very important. Got the got the mammogram. I got a three D mammogram. Um, which is literally no different for you than a 2D mammogram. It says they use different software to make a 3D model of your boobie, your breasticle. And, um, it was painful, I have to say. I I have fairly large breasts, and, um, I'm a double D, and, uh, uh, when you have large breasts. And my sister does not have large breasts, and she also finds mammograms painful, so maybe it doesn't really matter how big your tits are. Getting squeezed between a vice is is, is not going to be a pleasant experience, regardless. (sighs) Anyways, everything came up clear, 100%. Yay. And, um... But I, I get checked every year. So I'm not even mind. I'm I'm six months. I'm late. I usually do it in December, but you know I moved, so I'm doing it in July this year instead of December. Um, it seems like it's more of a summer procedure than a winter procedure. Anyway, um, 
I don't know why. It's just why be cold when your boobs are on display, you know? Right. Um, but I am, I'm a, I'm a double shot person, which is that my boobs are too big for the plates, no matter what plate they use. So they have to do every image twice because they do it pressed up against the sternum, up against the body to get the first half of the movie. And then they do heavy back up and they do the end of the movie. So every image is taken twice. It's particularly gruesome. Um, well, I don't mean to be, well, what size cup are you in? Between a G and an H. Depends Holy on the ball. Holy shit. Holy shit. I, got I, I want you to know, you guys, since you can't see me, I actually just grabbed my boobs and held them. <laughs> because a double D is deeply uncomfortable, I have to say, on a regular basis. Yeah. I would have, I, I would choose to have smaller boobs, that's for sure. But I have thought about the surgery, and I made the mistake of watching the surgery on the Learning Channel. Never. Don't do not oh. watch that surgery. It's horrifying. Don't it is, watch that surgery is, if you want to have that surgery because it is horrifying. It, it is major surgery. They're not kidding about that. I was like, nope. I'll just deal with what I got. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just deal. <laughs> I don't need cute bras that bad. Now you claim this is, is so terrible. Um, liposuction looks like a torture. It does. You watch it, but I I can disassociate things that are happening to me below the waist much easier than things that are happening above. I don't know what that's about, but I could get through like a knee replacement much easier than like major shoulder surgery or breast reduction or I don't know. It's just there's something about you know the closer it gets to my head, <laughs> the less I want it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like could you keep those surgeries like just you know I don't know down there uh, like go go to the feet you know that'd be great <laughs> well see I had a breast biopsy um, when I was younger because I had a precancerous tumor and um, it uh, it um, the biopsy was agonizing yeah I've had two um, I've had two biopsies the first one was agonizing. The second one, they knocked me out because I had to have an actual incision. The first one was a needle biopsy. And don't let anybody tell you that a needle biopsy is actually a needle because it's not. It's a spring. You know, like take apart one of your ink pens that's a clicky and you see that spring in it? It's like that, but it's bigger. And like they make a little incision in, 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 your, bro- in your boobie. And they guide that in using... Um, ultrasound, then they whip that spring around the stuff, whatever it is, the cyst, the tumor, whatever it may be, and then they jerk it out. Now, the problem is, like I've already told you, I have big boobs. Um, Not as big as some, but big enough, right? So they use Novocaine. They can't get you properly numb when they have to go into that. He didn't numb me deep enough. And so I screamed bloody murder when it came out. And I did take the volume before this procedure, too. My husband heard me scream from his place in the waiting room. 
the doctor asked me on a scale of one to ten, you know, um, how much it hurt, I said, is like one an orgasm and ten your homicide? If so, it was an eleven. He said, okay, um, I'll just let you get dressed. <laughs> and immediately <laughs> left the room. It was agonizing. Not only that, but it hurt for d- weeks afterwards. Um, my my nephew was very young, and he didn't. Um, we didn't really share the uh, the information with the kids in the family because it was just you know we didn't know what was going on and didn't know how bad it was going to be, and there was no need to upset them or you know whatever. And I, he's my he, I'm his favorite person, so when he saw me, he ran and jumped right into my lap. And I burst into tears. Oh my god! Was, oh. And then he started crying because he hurt me, and it was just—it was terrible. But um, I'm not—I'm not trying to give you nightmares about about it because it worked out great and everything is fine. But the the problem it, is these procedures are uncomfortable, and you start to dread them, and then you don't want to go. Um, but you need to go. Um, getting your mammogram on time is the—it could be the difference between life and death. Because it's a tumor is a time bomb. Um, even yeah. two months later, my precancerous tumor would have been cancerous. Some serious shit, ladies. So be careful. Gentlemen as well, get your junk checked. Get your boobs checked. Men can get breast cancer. Um, just, just take care of you. That's some adult shit you need to do on a regular basis, okay? And breast cancer in men tends to be get become fatal even more often, higher percentage than with women, of course, because men don't get it checked, right? So you know, you, be feeling your pecs, dudes. See if you feel anything odd. You know, you should go get that shit checked out. I taught my husband so, how to do the boob exam in the shower. He didn't know. He was thirty years old. Because I asked him if he was checking his stuff. He said, yeah, I checked my stuff. I said, not your junk, your stuff. (laughs) (laughs) There's a difference. He was like, I don't know know what you're talking about. So, um, you know, we go take a shower together, and I showed him how to do that. And um, he said, do I really need to do this? Yeah, you really need to do this, dude. You you really do. And so he does. Does the whole thing. It's really easy to do in the shower because you can have soap and you can. It's, it's easy to, you know, with slick skin to to really press and and you know. But there's there, there's guidelines online you can look up for men and women. So get on there and and look and know how your stuff is supposed to feel so you'll know if, um, when it feels different and get your mammogram as soon as um, it is suggested to do so. And if you feel like you got a spot. Make an appointment with your doctor and let your doctor decide whether or not it's a big deal. And if you think it's a big deal and your doctor doesn't, get a second opinion. That's across the board. If there's anything going on in your body that you think is a big deal and your doctor tells you not to worry about and you're really concerned and they don't take your concerns seriously and they don't do the test, even if they don't agree with you know your feelings on the matter, get a second opinion. Don't let a doctor ignore you. That's right. I think I've lectured enough. 
<laughs> I told you I was bitchy. <laughs> I could bitch about anything right now. <laughs> Give me a topic. I will bitch about it. <laughs> I will build a soapbox and get up on it. The results of the Stanley Cup just came in. I won't say anything for those who are planning to watch the game later. The game you were watching? Um, whoever was watching the game? Demad was watching the game. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you have a, I will say- a mole or um, anything that just pay pay attention because cancer um, cancer is no joke and um, it you take it very seriously take it very seriously know what kind of cancers run in your family get tests done for that if you've had a, a grandparent um, or a parent with with colon cancer get your colon checked I realize that up as far as possible the colonoscopy is not a pleasant experience but in most civilized countries you can sleep through it. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Me and my my um, paradoxical reaction to sedatives is just a, it's a curse. Yeah, but can you get like a really really nice Xanax before? Um, it, it doesn't matter what they give me, whether it's Xanax or anything. Xanax chills me out, but it, I mean, which makes actually when I'm chill, I'm more likely to be talkative, which the doctor doesn't appreciate. Um. <laughs> can you shut oh, up can we get a ball gag in here <laughs> it's a little bit like what's that where are you now oh that feels kind of strange <laughs> he's just like could somebody give her some more medicine please <laughs> <laughs> what about Poor like, man. Um, what about like when you go to the dentist can you get that kind of stuff the the gas? No, it doesn't work on me. It doesn't work on me. Holy shit. I mean, you mean if you had like a root canal, you have to be conscious for that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's either, it, yeah, the, the toilet, stuff they call twilight sedation. There's no twilight involved there for me. I mean, opiates, any opiate, that's one of the reasons why I don't take opiates, no matter how much pain I'm in, is because I don't sleep. I will be bouncing off the walls. Wow. Something to do with liver enzymes and something like that. I don't know. Some doctor tried to explain it to me, but I was like, it's just going right over my head. <laughs> I have no idea what you're yapping about. But it's terrible. Wow, that's terrible. But also, folks, any kind, anytime your body's growing something that is not normal, you need to get it checked out because even if it's not cancer, benign tumors can be very aggressive. Um. Um, I was when I had my I had a benign tumor removed. And actually, in my case, if it had been cancer, they have left it in um, and, and shrunk it with radiation. But because it was benign, they tend to be aggressive. They took it out. I actually wound up in the room with a person who had the exact same tumor, um, and mine was caught early. But mine was intruding on my heart, and hers was growing the opposite direction. It was intruding on her lung. They had mm-hmm. to remove a third of her lung to treat wow. that tumor by the time they caught it. That tumor was was taking over her lung, and um, it could have killed her. She was suffocating by the time they got it out of her. So um, 
Don't ignore anything your body's doing that it's not supposed to do. And don't let your doctor ignore it either. And this is especially for my female um, listeners. Don't let a doctor dismiss your pain or your discomfort or your concerns because of your weight, because of your gender. Don't let a doctor tell you you have anxiety when you have chest pains. Yeah, that's all don't let, bullshit. Don't let them assume you're hysterical when you're in pain. And it is perfectly legitimate for you to tell your doctor he's fired and get you a new one. I'm just saying. I fired more than one doctor. Yeah. It's actually kind of cathartic the first time you do it. It's like, oh, I don't have to put up with this shit. (laughs) Right? Right? There was the kind of there. There's a it, it the, the tumors that grow the biggest are um, ovarian tumors. Um, there was an article about one recently. I want to say that they were, by the time they removed it, it was 131 pounds or something like wow. that. Wow! Wow! Um. So you know. Make sure that they there it's a common type of tumor, and they tend to be benign, but they can grow massive and they can grow very quickly. Um, this lady who had the big tumor, I want to say that they said that she was gaining like in the realm of pounds a day with this tumor because of the grow. tumor, yeah, so yeah she she lost half her weight in the surgery to get that tumor out. I mean, I don't know why it took them so uh-huh. long. Actually, I do know why, because doctors didn't want to deal with it. They were saying that it was too complicated a surgery, and it just kept growing until a doctor finally said, it doesn't matter how complicated the surgery is, we have to try and get it out of you. And that wasn't the record for the biggest one. Um, No, I don't think that's the... Anyway, um, so you know, my doctor offered me a full hysterectomy for two tiny cysts on my ovary. I'm serious. I mean, they're barely visible on the ultrasound. She says, you know, we can get that all out for you if you want to. Maybe it's the difference between having a male doctor and a female doctor. Okay, it was this baby, it was in May, it was in May 3rd, it was a 132-pound ovarian tumor, was removed from a woman in Connecticut. Um, It was done before May, but they reported it in May, they wanted to make sure of of her health before they um, took it out. It was 132 pounds. Well, um, Sybil, I have some other gynecological issues going on, um, among them PCOS, and so I have multiple cysts. At any at any given time, what I'm saying is my doctor was fully on board with for removing whatever I wanted to remove because of a, a small cyst. I don't understand how something can get to be 120 pounds and then they decide to take it out. 
asshole doctors. And when I read the article on CNN about this lady, a lot of it was that there was that was two the doctors. Well, she probably had asshole doctors. You know, she started mm-hmm. assholery and bad insurance or something. And then by the time it got a little bit bigger, the surgery was complicated, and then it was dangerous. And then one doctor was like, "Okay, you have, you you can't function. That tumor is so big. We got to get it out of you." So, I mean, she was carrying around an adult person on her ovary. I mean, that is not acceptable. No, not by any stretch of the imagination. So when your body is doing anything um, that is weird, anything, even if if the doctor goes, oh, well, it's benign, get another opinion. Because benign does not mean safe. It does not say benign, benign sounds better than it is. Benign can be very dangerous. My grandmother had a benign brain tumor. It was the size of a fucking softball by the time they removed it. She never recovered her mental faculties when they got that thing out of her. Benign does not mean okay. Here's the, so and when also, your doing weird things, get it checked. A pro tip. If you seek a second opinion and your doctor gets hostile with you, fire them on the spot. Tolerate that shit. No. If they cop an attitude, get hostile with you, get bitchy about releasing the records to a second doctor, they're fired. Don't play games with your health and don't let somebody's butt hurt get you killed. We expect you to do everything you can to stick around. Even if it takes you out of your comfort zone. I know it's not comfortable. We're taught not to fight back against the medical establishment, but just what you need to do. So, (laughs) now that we've lectured all of you about your junk and your stuff. (laughs) Told you what to do with your own bodies. (laughs) (sighs) You know, I'll you know now, one more for a real thing. I'd rather remove have a small cyst removed than to have a ten pound you know tumor removed. Um, that's the difference between laparoscopic and full blown surgery. The bigger it gets, the longer they're going to have to open you up hip to hip to get it out. You don't want people cutting into your abdominal wall or your chest cavity if you can help it because that is is very painful recovery. <clears throat> All right, so let's talk about the show topic. <laughs> Just because you're unique doesn't mean you're useful. <laughs> I love that image. Hey, you know, it, it boils down to sometimes we see somebody um, um, in fandom doing something to, um, and we talked about it before, you know, like uh, putting all of your your dialogue and block quotes or or some stupid shit like that um and it's not um when you do crazy ass formatting shit like that all it does is lower readability and while yes i firmly believe you should always write for yourself when you're posting your work online it's because you want somebody to read it and tell you you're great 
it's going to be real hard to read it if you don't pay attention to readability, like putting um, white letters on a big bright yellow background. Remember those GeoCity sites in the night in the eighties? Oh. Not, not, not the eighties, but the nineties. Oh my god! And the, so and hard all the to flashing. read. Oh, and the music. Thank you, MySpace. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just saying you want it to be readable. You don't want it glittery, and but that's really hard to do on an archive. But you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just I sometimes feel like when people do that, they're at, they're they're almost like advert. They're like almost like proudly advertising their inexperience, and I'm like, what's you're trying to be original and you're just showing that you're not well trained. Uh, maybe that's snobby of me. I don't know, but I just, just kind of roll my eyes and move on to some degree. But, you know, there is no inconsistency to say you don't have to consider your readers, but you do have to consider readability. That's not inconsistent because what is the point of putting it online if it's going to be unreadable? If you don't, You're not pandering to your readers to follow basic guidelines of formatting and structure. There are basics for a reason. And that is, I actually think, one of the most dangerous things of the fandom paradigm is that it tells you that you don't have to do any of the basics if you don't want to. That you don't have to consider them, and you don't have to learn them. That <laughs> you should just... And I, I got in, I got in an argument with somebody one day about that, and I said, I said, no, the basics are important. The basics of writing, the basics of craft are important. She says, well, it's more important to people who want to write just write. You don't want people stumped and stymied and, and you know, inhibited or intimidated or prevented from writing um, because they don't know the basics. And I was a little bit stumped about how to respond to that because I certainly didn't go and study all the basics before I started writing. But on the other hand, I... In, I somewhat had absorbed a lot of the basics. A okay, no. And B through reading. I can, I can, I think I can kind of respond to this. Yes. Right. Right, 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 right. And then when you finish, you need to learn how to edit. And how do you do that? You seek out people in your sphere that can help you with various tasks. You buy craft books and you read. I can give you a whole list of books to read that would help you with your craft. You learn all you can writing, and then you go back to your project that you've written, and you start your second draft. And you edit your manuscript, and then, okay, you've learned something. So you go to the next project, and all the stuff that you learned editing that first one, it's going to be there already in you. That's what I'm talking about learning when um, that I learn with every experience, that I learn every time I write, that I, that I grow as a writer, um, because I'm seeking out uh, new information every time I'm in an editing process, or I'm researching, or... I'm structuring scenes, um, looking at, you know, the, 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 the goals and the motivations of my characters and I'm moving. And that is the goal of any artist to improve. So if you don't know the basics, but you have this immense desire to write, write, write every damn day, but also educate yourself on the, on the path. 
and it doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, it's not no, like people no. are asking you to memorize the Chicago Manual of Style in order to be able to write. That isn't even the goal. There's a difference between the basics and mastery in something, right? There's a difference between even like an apprenticeship or journeyman-type level versus mastery or that kind of thing. There's a big difference between understanding everything and understanding the basics. And when you're writing, the basics are things like point of view, tense, um, dialogue mechanics. Um, things like that are the very basic fundamentals. Nobody's asking you to get all the commas right or to um, understand the difference between, um, well, the different kinds of beats in a story or to be able to understand, to be able to, nobody's asking you to be able to describe narrative structure or to understand and be able to explain what narrative devices you're using. Nobody's asking for that. But what are the basics? If you cannot understand point of view, you need to back up. And I find I, so many people who are writing it don't understand point of view. Point of view is fundamentals. It, and it, it is knives, forks, and spoons, right? You have to understand what point of view you're writing from. You have and you to also, be able to understand. Good. You also have to know what point of view best serves the story you want to tell. Mm-hmm. Because it is all about point of view. You take a classic example of The Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz is told from Dorothy's point of view. And in that point of view, she's being harassed and stalked by a terrible witch. And all she wants to do is go home because she threw a snotty fit and got hit in the head with a piece of stove wood and <laughs> got in a tornado. And things got real, okay? And then there were some munchkins. So, but what if it was told from the Wicked Witch's point of view? Which you can see in Wicked. Here she is going about her day. Some hussy from Kansas drops the house on her sister and then steals her inheritance. She spends the whole movie pursuing this murderer -er, who who then kills her with a bucket of water and keeps her damn shoes. I'm just saying. It's all about point of view. It is the most fundamental part of your writing. History is written by the victor. Do you remember when we did, of course you remember the single point of view challenge. (laughs) Mm, Yes, I do. (laughs) I'm still finagling that shit. We spent and the single point of view challenge, Rough Trade, it was it was a nano. It was a it was a full challenge month, and Kira did Darkly Loyal, and I did Slytherin Black. Um, we spent so much time talking about point of view, and we talked about it, and we talked about it, and we talked about it, and we talked about it. And what? And it wasn't the problem of talking about it. That wasn't an issue. Because if somebody still had a question, we would continue to answer it. If somebody had a question today about point of view, I would stop and sit down and answer the question. I would send them resources about a point of view. But what was clear then, once we ended the challenge, a lot of people still didn't get it. They still didn't understand the fundamentals of point of view. And I think what was astonishing me about that to me, um, and, and I don't mean this critically of anybody, is that point of view is so basic that if you don't feel like you have a solid grasp on it, you need to slow your roll and stop and get a solid grasp on it. 
You need to figure out what is confusing about it and straighten that shit out. Because that is that is so foundational in writing, is that you have a point of view, you understand your point of view, and that you maintain your point of view. Now, some points of time, some stories have an alternating point of view or a multiple point of view or an omniscient point of view. But the thing is, is that that's fine as long as you understand. Before you're going to embark on a more advanced point of view than a singular point of view, you need to understand point of view better because that's when it all starts to fall apart. And I just feel like sometimes I see people talk in writers' groups or in comments and stuff, and it's just like they just they feel like it's like these foundational elements are not important, that it's more important that you write and post your stuff and get feedback than it is to learn the basics. And I, I don't get that. Yes, write. Write and make mistakes, but then figure out your mistakes and learn. And you've got to get the foundations down. You need to understand point of view. You need to be able to understand versus present tense and how to stay in one or the other. I think one of the most glaring examples of a point of view problem in fandom is the one-sided conversation. And it is a pet peeve for both of us, and we've talked about it before. Um, especially with a one-sided conversation when you're in the POV of the person on the phone. So, like, say Tony takes a phone call from Gibbs, and it's just Tony in the room by himself. He's the narrator. He is your point-of-view character. And yet, you don't hear what Gibbs is saying. You just see Tony's responses on the screen. That literally makes no sense. If you are in your POV character... He is hearing everything that Gibbs is saying on the line. So there should be no gaps. There should be no blanks. There should be no... We sh- the reader should be hearing or seeing Gibbs' dialogue, is, is what I'm saying. Um, mm-hmm. I think one of the best ways to master point of view and to master what your point of view character can and cannot see and can and cannot know is to write in first person. It really is. And I'll give you a perfect example of how something is so glaringly obvious in first person that is not so obvious in third person. So let's say you're in third person. I've, I've seen this kind of thing in, in, in general in many stories. Um, in every fandom, people do this, okay? Third person point of view, Tony's point of view, and Tony's doing something. He didn't notice the person who peeped in and looked at him and then shut the door quietly. How is that Change possible? that to first person. Change it to first person. You're in Tony's point of view. I, I was looking through some papers, and I didn't notice the person who stuck their head in, looked at me, and closed the door quietly. It sounds ridiculous in first person because it can't possibly happen. It's in his point of view. How can he possibly be knowing, noticing something that he didn't notice? And it sounds ridiculous in first person point of view, but in third person, because it is ridiculous, it, glossed over because it. it is ridiculous. But in third person, we just read it, gloss over it, and move on. Now there is a third person omniscient point of view, but even then, yeah. in that, in a third person om- omniscient, um, that would be glaringly awkward. Right, because the omniscient point of view isn't Tony's point of view. 
The omniscient point of view is an omniscient narrator's point of view. It's called the God point of view. But that can be difficult to wrap your head around. But it'd be like, also, imagine... The, the, God, the, the, the God POV is really narrow, kind of. I mean, it's like expansive, but it's also narrow emotionally, and it can be really um, clinical. Because right. it it is a narrator's point of view. It is not a character's point of view. So a lot of times storyteller. Right. When people are when people tell me they're writing in an omniscient point of view, I kind of often laugh because I'm like, no, you're not. For starters, you have distinct character voices in your narrative. That's not the omniscient point of view because the narrative voice is the only voice. So you don't have character voice outside of dialogue in an omniscient point of view. Because imagine imagine if. Kira and I and Lady Holder all observed the same event, and we all knew all the facts about all the people in the event, and we each retold the event in our own voice. Each of us in our story is the narrator's point of view. Each of us is effectively is the God point of view, which means we are relaying what we're hearing, what we saw, what we know, as the narrator, it is our point of view. It's the narrator's point of view, not the character's point of view. There's a distinct difference. So all three of those stories would come out distinctly different. Why? Because the point of view, the voice, is the voice of the narrator. It is not the voice of the character. So people will give, they'll, they'll lob it back to you when you challenge them on point of view and say, oh, I'm writing an omniscient point of view. No, you're not. You've got distinct character voice. You've got deep internal thoughts, and they're all muddled up, and you're jumping back and forth. What you're doing is head hopping. Stop calling it omniscient, and let's just move on with the fact that you're a head hopper. If you want to head hop, <laughs> Nora. please own it. Yeah, own your head hopping, Nora. Dedicate your book to Nora Roberts and move on. <laughs> but don't call it an omniscient point of view because it isn't. So it's one of those, right? People said, I don't like first person. You need to try it. You may not like it, but it is a great writing exercise. And maybe nobody else will ever see it. And if you can't bear to write something that nobody else sees, I'm honestly not talking to you. <laughs> right? No, we're never talking to you. Ever. I'm not I mean, talking and, to and, and, you. And it's, not, and it's not a judgment. But these craft shows aren't for you. Write, if you want to improve your craft, if you're serious about writing, and this isn't just whatever, write, even if you hate first-person point of view, try it, because you will have an understanding in first-person of the limits of point of view that you do not get in third-person. I wrote, I started writing, my first writing was in first-person. It was what made sense to me initially. And I have written more words in my life in first-person than I've written in third-person. It is not my preferred point of view now, but it used to be. And so I think because I spent a lot of my early writing in first-person, I developed a real sensitivity to point of view. I can spot a head hop like nobody's business. There are times when I even like sometimes go, okay, I'm being a little bit nitpicky. <laughs> yeah. Kind of, uh, I'm being a little bit but, fussy about the point of view. 
we've discussed Jilly's POV before, and Jilly writes in a deep, deep third person um, to the point where it would take very little to change most of her work into first person work. That's how deep her third person is. And it's different than my third person. I tend to write the top of the narrative and she writes the bottom with the, yeah. with the emotional narrative. And the, this is just the difference. This is the, and this is the range of the third person point of view. You can go as deep as you want. As long as you stay. I think the deeper you go into third person, though, the more you need to stay in a single POV. And a single POV does not equal first person. It means you're telling a story from one character's point of view. Because if you tell, if you go really deep in your third person narrative, um, in a single point of view, you can create a very intimate and very rewarding story that can be difficult to accomplish outside of first person. Or if you're having um, five or six characters with POV. Even two characters with POV yeah. can be intrusive, depending on the... Um, the depth and intimacy of your character work. But if you took a piece of Julie's work and just analyzed it for point of view, you, you would see, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you, you dissect her work, but if you took a couple of paragraphs out, copied them into a word document and changed it all to first person. And then did the same to my work. You'd see the difference. And that's a practical exercise to undergo. Um, so that, I mean, you can't copy paste from my website, but you could do it from the, um, the uh, I think the forum will allow you to do it in the challenges, the, our little big short challenges. Um, and I'm not really sure if that's a good choice because those might not be as um, deep. But it's just, a, it's just an exercise that you take other people's work and change them into first-person point of view. And then you will see the range of the POV. Yeah. Now, do you do some, some the more of my, the works of mine that have more points of view tend to be a little bit shallower in the point of view. Like Journey Home is shallower in the point of view; it's not as deep. But the longer I write, the more the deeper the POVs we get. So, um, especially I think the deepest point of view, um, deepest third person, is probably Memories, which is strictly a Gibbs point of view story. Um, that I agree. One, I think could easily easily be switched into first person with very little effort, um, and it wouldn't read that differently. Um, but anything where I stay solely in one point of view, uh, the big the the epics. It, when you get into something that's kind of epic, um, it's it's harder to maintain that self full point of view, which makes Slytherin Black a little bit different because I am going epic length of it, and it will be one point of view. But that was the challenge, folks. That was the challenge. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, it was a challenge. Wow. I just finished. Um, I've got two chapters left in um, Dr. Lowell. I killed Molly Weasley. It was really, yay! again, I killed her again. It was It was really nice. Well, she needed more than one death. Yeah, yeah, she did. So, it's really interesting to write a Harry Potter story where Voldemort is a footnote. <laughs> yeah, I bet that would be. I mean, because more often than not, in the Harry Potter story, if you're if if you're writing before or if you're writing 
post Hogwarts, he's a distant, or he's a memory. But if you're writing during Hogwarts, like I am with Darkly Lowell, um, Voldemort's usually front and center. And so to to have sidelined him to the point where he literally is like basically a mosquito. I mean, he it's going to be the work of nothing. I mean, the, the, they already have all of his Horcruxes. Um, Harry's going to go into that fight knowing that that it's basically a mercy killing and that he's killing one of his own because Dumbledore destroyed him. Because Tom Riddle was one of Zier's children and Dumbledore destroyed him for Flamel's um, obscene campaign against magic. And so Harry's going into that fight seeing the, the death of Voldemort Tom Riddle as a mercy killing. Yeah. And that's just a different that's point different. of view from what happened in canon and how he's killed other people. Because <laughs> cause yeah. earlier on there's a, um, there's a scene where he kills somebody and he, he, he says mercy is appalling. Which really amused Draco. But Harry meant it. He finds mercy appalling. He, he He's death. The master of death. He's the personification. You know, he's the personification of death, and so a mercy killing is is appalling to him. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there are only um, there are only four Weasleys left, and um, they're the ones who who aren't going to get in the way. That's the twins, Bill and Charlie. So. Um, yeah, they didn't give they didn't give Harry or Draco or, or Hermione any reason to kill them. I'm gonna have to listen to that podcast, Rogue, because I don't actually remember the cereal bowl. I don't throw away my dishes, so it's very likely I still have that cereal bowl. Although I'm I'm on a diet, so I'm not allowed to have a whole lot of carbs. So there's not a whole lot of cereal eating in my house right now. I have to say. Because cereal equals carbs. Big time. I mean, I'm so carb-deprived that I'm starting to think, like, Cheerios sound like the food of the gods, you know? It's really sad. I know, right? I'd kick somebody's butt for some apple cinnamon Cheerios right now. (sighs) I know. Send her the link to that radio show so she can figure out, go listen to which one she, uh, won the cereal bowl. But um, yeah, I don't remember it at yeah. all. But I have I have fibromyalgia, and um, my my memory is shot. Sometimes I'll read something I wrote like six years ago. I'm like, did I write that? <laughs> my memory is shot, but I think it's just because I'm 45. <laughs> I turned, I went into my 40s. My memory left, and my bladder got anxious. <laughs> Or tiny. I don't know what's the deal with it. It's like a trunk or something. There's less capacity. Like going to the bathroom constantly. On the, um, I was bitching the cure earlier that, um, 
because, you know, that's what I do is I see random things and I bitch about it. Um, I was bitching about a story I was reading where they had a point of view. Um, they as in everybody in the scene. <laughs> no, just three people. There were there were six people in the scene and three of them oh, had the same oh. point of view. Oh, um, the same so you had three, I did that one. Three, pe- three people walk in to the scene and the scene, there have been many scenes before this that were in a singular point of view and actually all of the same character's point of view. I think like six or seven scenes and the three people show up and the scene is in, I thought at first it was in one of the three people who was arriving point of view. And all of a sudden I think they observed, they noticed, they felt, they agreed that that was a good idea. And I was like, does they, is they having a point of view? All three people at one time, are they sharing a brain? No, there's no telepathy happening. It's not that kind of story. I was, I, I had, I was so incensed that I abused my Kindle. It was. <laughs> she was perplexed. I, she was I, bamboozled. The POV violation was just so extreme that it was just like I don't know. <laughs> it was egregious. <laughs> there is like, a What scene. have you done? In Harry Potter and Soulmate Bond, point where, of view. I know, right? In Harry Potter and Soulmate Bond, where Hermione and Harry, that um, Harry has revealed that Voldemort basically fathered, um, fired snakes with Nagini um, children. Hermione, having realized that Voldemort had sex with his um, familiar um, while he was, you know, in his animagus form. Um, Said that she says on the lines of that nasty motherfucker, and then everybody in the scene agreed with her. <laughs> like the whole yeah, like and no one could disagree, or something like that. Not, so like they all had a not, POV, like it was an instant. And not not everybody nodded or from their <laughs> no. expressions, everybody agreed. Nothing, no, no, they all agreed. It was like they all agreed. Wow, that is some that is some epic head hopping. <laughs> Right, I totally did it, and it's still in there because it it amuses me. But yeah, you know, like that's just to point out that nobody is perfect, right? But um, yeah, I totally did it. Every is once in a while, I catch it. Yeah. I uh, I, every once in a while, I'll do some. I'm I'm less likely to make POV mistakes than tense mistakes, and I, I don't. I'm usually very sensitive to staying in tense. But every once in a while, I just will start writing in present tense. Um, it, <laughs> I don't need. I don't I, do. I don't know what one, that is. It's not for um, one or two sentences. It's usually for like a page. And all of a sudden, I was scratching my head going, why am I writing in present tense? And then I start reading up, and I'm like, I've been writing in present tense. <laughs> like, damn it. It just it happens. It happens. Some, I don't usually have, like, every once in a while, it does happen. But it, considering how much I write, I would say POV mistakes happen for me, really infrequently. Um, but when they do happen and I catch them in a reread, I just, I actually will blush. It's just, to me, it's like, <laughs> it's like oh my God, look at my, ter- look at my terrible shit. I was shit. like, oh my God, look what I did. And sometimes it's like, sometimes <laughs> I'll go, oh my God, thank, thank God this is not a rough trade project and nobody saw that. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I will fall into present tense and it makes no sense because I, I have never written in present tense. I have never set out to write in present tense. <laughs> it, I don't even like to read in present tense. It isn't even something that I, you know, and you could just do it by accident because you're reading a whole bunch of present tense. No, I don't do that. I, yeah, um, I, 
you turn, you see present tense, you go, no, hard stop. Nope. It's really rare for now, me to I read have, a I have written I have written in present tense kind of as an exercise. I want to try it. I've done a few stories in present tense. Um, it's it's not it, there's something so I even tried writing in first person present tense. Don't judge me. Um, mm, but there's something so, hard. so close and and immediate about it that I think I could handle a very distant narrative in 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 um in third person present tense if, if there's, there needs to be some distance but like a very immediate deep point any kind of deep point of view deep third person or um or first person in in present tense is very uncomfortable it's just so in your face and the more angsty or action packed it is i mean you do really intense <laughs> action scene in first person present tense it takes your breath away it, and for me that is not something i really usually want to experience um, right, I'll relax. I don't like to be. Um, Demand has a question about um, description. How much is too much description? This is a very subjective. Some people would say that description is very important, and you just have everything from the floor to the curtains, and just you just, and the softness of her sweater, and and some don't. I don't like a lot of description. I um don't invest a lot in environmental description. It's just not my style. Uh, But if I am encountering the third or fourth paragraph of description and I haven't yet to hit a piece of dialogue, I'm going to start skipping down until I find a piece of dialogue. Because I can't... We're going to bore the shit out of me. Um, I... I think it's important to separate description out with dialogue and to keep your paragraphs short for readability. Short being five or six sentences, not like too long. But, you know, it's it's about pacing at that point because uh, a lot of exposition can destroy your pace. Yeah, some people will say that, you know, reading tons of description doesn't ruin the pace for them. Um if you're going to put in a bunch of description, you need to be careful where you do it because I don't care what they say, it will ruin the pace. Um, I was reading um, a sex scene. It was going really well. And all of a sudden there's a pause for about a page and a half of description of something. And then back to the sex. And it was basically the character noticing something and describing it that had nothing to do with what was going on, it ruined that sex scene. I mean, ruined it. That sex scene had no pace at that point. And getting back to it was jarring. And so you can't, if, if, you know, if, if you're the kind of writer who likes to write description, and if you, your readers are going to, people who read you religiously, are going to clearly appreciate your level of description, um, you really do need to learn how to where to put that and how to pace it into your story so that you aren't murdering um, action scenes or um, you just you just it, it, when you're trying to when when you're building when you're building to something you don't want to have dips so that you can stop and describe shit you know. Um, I feel. I actually don't, I feel stronger, actually. I don't really like description. I don't like, I don't, I don't, I I like broad brushstrokes. No description can be difficult, 
but give it just kind of broad strokes is good, like, you know, where something is located or um, if, if actually when it comes to clothes, if the clothes they're wearing are not particularly relevant to the scene, they don't set any tone in the scene, I don't care what they're wearing. But some people need to describe every outfit that every person is wearing, even if they're not particular, particularly important to the scene, and I just find that to be completely pace-killing no matter where it is. But... um the um, I actually find excessive introspection even more frustrating. Um, a character just in their head thinking about events um, for page after page after page after page annoys. It just it drives me batshit insane. And that's me as a reader. I don't do it as a writer. Sometimes a character has to think about stuff. That's a given. But when that is every chapter coming in and thinking about events over and over and over and over and over, that will kill your pace faster than describing the wainscoting. I'm just saying. Yeah, Jean, I love you, I but like, I don't really give a shit at how blood leather gets um, cured by pee. Um but thanks, because if we're ever in an apocalypse, I'll be able to make my own clothes. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would honestly rather ha- read how to make soap than, um, uh, than, than Tony Stark musing on all of the events in canon for fifty pages. Honestly, I would that's, rather read the soap making. That's the nope train to Noteville. I will skip it. <clears throat> And like, I know ha- I know you. I've gone too far in my own exposition. If I'm skipping my if, if I'm skipping my own exposition, I need to take more. I need to take that shit out. <laughs> if I start skipping my own shit, I need to. I need to edit that. <laughs> Boy, yeah, my if shit you just... can't bear to reread it, it's time to move. On. It's time to get it out. <laughs> yeah, I think a complete set of Gina Yule's books would get us through the apocalypse. We learn how to put up perhaps, meat, and how to skin animals, and how to trap animals, and make weapons, and soap. How to cure our own weather. You add back to the Martian to your breeding list, and you're all set. We can grow stuff, make our own fertilizer. Make water. Yeah. Dangerously. We have tanks of... Yeah. <laughs> we're trying to blow ourselves up. You'd need somebody who can do math, though, because that's not near Kira. <laughs> yeah, I can't math. I can't math at all. Yeah, I'm screwed. What's hysterical is when she and I are trying to validate each other's math, and we just sometimes we just give up and go and get Lady Holder. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. True story. Yeah. <laughs> Because we're not convinced, because sometimes we'll get to an answer we think we agree on. It's like, this is right, right? I don't know. We should get another <laughs> ask Lady Holder. <laughs> nah, I do not need how to survive a Sharknado, because there's not going to be any Sharknados. That's just ridiculous. And if for some reason there is a Sharknado, I'll be staying in the house. <laughs> in the basement. 
No, you want to go to high ground if there's a Sharknado because the base will fill up with water and then there'll be places for them to swim. I'm just saying. Except the Sharknados, the the, the sharks are not in the water. They're in the tornado. Have you ever actually watched Sharknado? Well, yeah, but they drop out of the tornado and they're in the streets and stuff and that's how they kill people. It's because the streets are flooded, and the Sharknado takes the sharks out of the water and drops them into the streets and stuff, and they get into homes. I have seen the movies. I have not At actually the first seen the I, um, I, I, I am judging the shit out of you right now. <laughs> okay, so my sister judged me, too. And the thing is, somebody told me, they said, they told me, and I think I was being trolled because somebody told me, they said, that like the second and third Sharknado movies are actually really good, but the first one was crap. And I was really skeptical about this claim, but I didn't feel like I could watch, start with the second movie in a series to see if it was actually any good. So I sat down and watched the first movie. So my sister walks in the room and she goes, what are you watching? And I'm like, Sharknado. <laughs> I got this look. Like, I had just killed a puppy. <laughs> she was like, you're doing what? And I explained I to her my reasoning. And she, I explained to her my reasoning, and she goes and she gets a drink, and she sits down, and she watches the rest of Sharknado with me. And she's like, that was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. And I said, I agree. And I said, but supposedly the second movie is better. And it's supposed to actually be pretty good, right? So then we put on the second movie for like 10 minutes in, and she's like, Wow, the first ten minutes is stupider than the whole other movie combined. <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, yeah." How those Sharknado took down a plane? I'm not really sure, but it did. <laughs> Sharks eating people on a plane in the air. I need to rethink my life choices. <laughs> I, I no, I have not read it. My nephew loves it though. He loves that shit. He, he's, he's big on shark movies. He called me, he, um, he's eight. He called me and he said, um, do you have plans in August? And I'm like, dude, I don't even know if I have plans next week. What happens in August? And he said, there's going to be a new shark movie and I want you to take me to see it. I said, well, what is this new shark movie about? He said, it's about a big shark. Okay. And he said, dad told me to tell you that Jason Stratham is in it and that will make you want to watch it. I said, well, your dad's not wrong. <laughs> I said, that's a date. He goes, yay! And then he hung up on me. Yeah, it's the Meg. It's called the Meg. And uh, it's about a Megalodon. And um, I watched a preview for it. It looks ridiculous. And he's going to enjoy it so much. But, um, yeah. What's Jason Stratham was, in fact, enough. Movie? Sometimes you need to watch a movie about giant crocodiles or sharknadoes or whatever. I will say, if you don't take them seriously and you're willing to just laugh at the stupid as opposed to get pissed off by the stupid, it can be an entertaining way to spend 90 minutes or whatever, preferably with a beer or five. Um, but it's, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's, if, you, if you're not in that headspace, don't watch that kind of, kind of shit. But I did go back to the person who um, told me that it was great. But she said, I really enjoyed the rest of the movie. And I was like, I do not know what's wrong with you. <laughs> I but I think you need a psychologist to figure it out. Um, Whatever it is, it is no small thing. Those movies were not good. Well, who was the love story about? Jaws and the boat? Oh, it was a very pleasure. abusive relationship. That's just ugly. That's terrible. That's ugly ass behavior. 
But say Azra got her cousin to watch the first Jaws movie by telling her it was a love story. A love story. A love story about Azra troubling her cousin. Um. Um. I I got nothing. In the chat room, Lady Holder says, for those on the podcast, my sister and brother-in-law thought that Deliverance was a comedy. Hopefully before they saw it, not after. My husband had never seen Deliverance. And as such, he really didn't understand what the dueling banjo thing was about. And there was that commercial where those dudes are um, in the woods at night and they're around a campfire. It was a car commercial. And in the background, dueling banjo started playing. And they all looked at each other and ran, got in the car and, and drove away really quick. And I laughed my ass off, right? Because that's some funny shit. Um, except my husband didn't get it. And I was like, wait, have you not seen Deliverance? And he's, he said, no. I said, well, I'm not going to let you watch it because it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, but I'm going to tell you what happened in the banjo scene. And so I told him about the banjo scene and how they met the hillbillies and the banjos and the dueling banjos. And then I told him what the hillbillies did. And he totally got the banjo reference in that commercial. But he also simultaneously decided that I was terrible for laughing. <laughs> he said, that, that shit's not funny. <laughs> that shit's not funny at all. <laughs> it was to me. I laughed my ass off. <laughs> you never seen some white dudes move so fast. Outside of a professional sports arena. I'm just saying. It's hilarious. <clears throat> but he has still not watched it. And um, no, he won't be watching it. There's just no need for that kind of trauma at his age. I mean, if you've not seen Deliverance and you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm not going to discuss it on the podcast. Take your butt over to Wikipedia and read the synopsis. I'm not suggesting you watch the movie. Yes, yes, definitely just read the synopsis. Do I would actually discourage you from watching the movie because there are a, there's a few things that I've seen in my life that I wish I could unsee, and Deliverance is one of them. And The Exorcist so. Uncut is the other, for me anyway. And pretty much the entirety of Castle Born Killers, but that's because it made me seasick. <laughs> <laughs> Blair Witch Project made me seasick. Um, I I only got I only got a few minutes of that and I started getting a headache and I was like nope nope nope. I watched it on TV, which I, I wasn't in the theater, um, and it was just like it was nauseating. My friends watched it and I I closed my eyes and listened to it. I can't see how the book would be worse, but then I can, because it could be so much more graphic in a book than what they showed in the movie. The book is worse for which movie? Deliverance. Oh, yeah. Or do well, you mean Exorcist? Because that... the Exorcist is fucking horrible on screen. I can't imagine it being. No, I don't want to talk about it. I don't even want to think about how it could be worse. 
Because, like, the, the, um, the movie Misery freaks me out because of all the visuals and stuff, but the book is much worse. Yeah, I can see um, how it would be. The book, the book is so much worse, but it's the visuals in the movie, even though they toned it down, that are sticking my head. So, just when she hobbles him, you. oh uh, my god, God, just I will be careful never what you watch. Over that. Oh, you some things you wish again. You wish you could get out of your head, but you can't. Um, there is a scene in Pet Cemetery that will forever be in my head, and I've only seen Pet Cemetery once. And it isn't my sister's a big horror fan. I'm not. Um, and there's a scene in Pet Cemetery where um, the woman, the, um, the mother, I mean, she's younger, and she's going to visit. She's going up the stairs to visit her sister, and her sister had this horrific disease that made her deformed, and she was she was vicious. The, the the sister was vicious, and she rears up off the bed like a like a demon. And oh my god, that will never not be in my head. Every time I see or hear anything about that movie, that image pops into my head. It, it is just like it's horrific. Some things just stick, and then they're there forever. And the only thing worse than Deliverance for me on that front. Would probably be Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction has Pulp Fiction has a couple of scenes. There's one in particular that I, whenever I watch Pulp Fiction, I have to fast forward through. I think it's the same one I have a problem with. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. Um, there are two or three scenes, at least two, and I'm, I'm thinking there's a third. Th- oh, there's three. There's three scenes in the movie The Immortals that I just. Oh my God! I wish that I, I had never seen that movie. Um, so if you haven't seen it, I recommend you don't because the scenes creep up on you. It's really hard to warn you for them, but it's just it's just terrible. It's just terrible. Is that the sequel um, to that movie? Um, I'm I'm not. What's Immortals about? Um, I it's it's a story about a. Um, sort of a, a warlord. Um, the star is Henry Cavill. And the, it, it's about um, basically all these demons being unchained and the Greek gods have to come and um, fight them back. But yeah, it's about kind of how they come unchained. Sequel that's, to what? That's, that's a sequel to something else. Perhaps. But they did some stuff in that movie, The Bad Guy in that stuff, which I think was played by Mickey Rourke. They did some stuff. He did some stuff that is just is so Mickey fucked Rourke. up. Yeah, it's, he's so fucked up, the stuff that he did, um, that I just, yeah, it's just, just something you can never get out of your head, and you just, um, yeah, don't, just don't, if you haven't seen it, I recommend you don't, because you don't. You yeah, don't Henry Cavill plays Theseus. That is a sequel to, um, Because I watched the first one, but I did not watch the second one because I was told that I shouldn't. The first, there was another movie about Theseus, and Immortals is supposed to be basically a, a sequel to it. Well, I don't know. I know if you're sensitive. I didn't. Whatever the first movie is, I didn't see it. So if you're a if you're a more, if you're sensitive to 
Um, visual imagery, I would recommend that you not see the Immortals. If, if see Immortals, if you haven't seen it, it's got. Now, let's say it's got epic eye candy in it, um, but it does that is no way made up for. In no way made up for the things that are etched into my brain that I wish I could bleach out. No, wait, this, this is the one that I think I saw. It's the one, the bull. Yes, the bull. That was the worst one. The bull. Yeah, okay, yeah, I did see this. Uh, there's a sequel to this movie, I believe. Oh, well, I didn't just, Well, considering what they did with the first one, I, the fuck, fucking hell, I'm no way I'm seeing Because whoever thought of some of that, that, that scene with the bull so horrified me. I actually had nightmares about it, and I usually don't get nightmares from. The thing um, with the bull was was horrific. I have to say, um, yeah, it was. And the other thing that I had a hard time with was the way that he ensured that all of his army was sterile. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to be more careful what you put in your brain. Um, the Golden Owl is the Clash of the Titans remake, and that's with Sam Worthington. Um, the the one with um, Theseus is called Immortals, and there was supposed to be a sequel, but it doesn't look like it got made. I wouldn't have watched it anyway because I was pretty much ruined, and I can't hardly stand to look at Mickey Rourke. Yeah. Not that he was ever easy to look at, but you know what I mean. He's always playing a bastard. He is always playing a bastard. The stuff they did with the Golden Owl and Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans, I thought was funny. Um, In in the remake of Clash of the Titans, they had to be like, what the hell is this thing? And they just kind of made a joke about it. And then in Wrath of the Titans... um, um, Hephaestus was... was, um, talking to it like it was talking to him it was just sitting there looking at him and he was talking to it like it was judging him or something I thought it was actually kind of clever how they brought the owl into that um, mm-hmm. since it was so since the original Clash of the Titans the owl was a really big component of the movie and they just kind of they did kind of a tip of the hat to it in both movies which I thought was actually kind of kind of cute but anyway um, back to our um so I got an email. The other thing I bitched to care about today, I got an email <laughs> after last night's podcast. I, I don't remember exactly what I said. It's really not particularly germane exactly what I said, but it was something along the lines of that logic is an idea craft, is not idea craft. And what I meant by that is coming to, drawing a logical conclusion, there's nothing particularly creative about logic. They're actually almost considered like the opposite sides of the fence, right? Um and you coming to anybody coming to a logical conclusion about a series of events in a movie or in a TV show or in a book is not idea craft. It is not coming up with an idea. Drawing a logical conclusion, making a logical inference is not coming up with an idea. It can be the basis for your idea, but it in of itself is not an idea. And for me, it's an exception to me saying that logic is not idea craft. And I guess they felt like, I don't know, I don't know what they felt like, but they thought that that was unfair. 
but me basically saying that somebody drawing, you know, um, writing a story, the first person who writes a story about some kind of logical inference, but it's like taking away, taking something away from them to say that it's not idea craft. Um, I'm sorry, folks, it's just not. And no argument or argument is going to change my mind on that. Because watching a TV show or something and drawing a logical conclusion about that does not make the story, that that particular bit of logic that you're basing your idea on, it doesn't make that piece of logic your idea. It's not. that There's a difference. It's you're basing an idea on a logical conclusion. And that's fine. Your idea, based on the logic, is the uh, the creative part of it. The logic it's itself like saying, is in so and so. Harry shoots Scott in the chest. The logical conclusion is that Scott dies. That is not an idea. That is the logical conclusion of the outcome. And specifically what they were taking exception to me saying was the part about Steve Rogers not being an actual captain. They think that that's like somebody's original idea. It's not. It is a logical conclusion based upon the evidence presented to us in the movies. Steve Rogers' rank is like basically an honorary doctorate. Right. So I don't know. It was just it was, a, it was a, and they weren't they weren't hostile about the email, but they were like trying to correct me about what idea what what it, what an original idea is. And just because you're the first person to write a story based about drawing a logical conclusion based upon um, canon events, does not mean that um, it's that that piece of logic is not in any way that person's intellectual. Um, creative idea. It isn't. It can't be because it is rational reasoning. Let me tell you a bit of rational, logical reasoning that I came to when I was plotting small magic. When I decided that um, the world, Bilbo's world and Harry's world were basically mirrors of each other um, in that that it's basically a different version of Earth that, that, that Bilbo lives on. And that there is magic on Middle-earth, um, very similar to the magic that Harry has. And um, I started researching, I started reading a lot about um, Sauron and the One Ring. And here's the thing about the One Ring. When he created the One Ring, he put a portion of his soul into it. So logically, if I mix the Harry Potter-verse with the Lord of the Rings verse and the Hobbit, I have to acknowledge that the one ring is actually a Horcrux. Because a Horcrux is an object with a piece of a soul in it. Only be destroyed in a volcano. That it's essentially indestructible. Much like the Horcrux in Harry Potter. It was essentially indestructible, except for a set of circumstances, one of which included an very, a very intense fire. Conclusion could be drawn that all the Horcruxes could have been dropped in a volcano. Gobby may or may not do that. It, it might blow up the volcano. <laughs> I don't know. 
but that, that's the point. This is this is a logical conclusion, and a lot of people were like, "Oh, that's so interesting that you made the Horcrux. That you made this um, one ring a Horcrux." I didn't. It's by definition a Horcrux. Once you fuse those two, now and honestly, it's honestly actually that the the diary and the diadem and the locket and Harry are actually basically the one ring. I think she kind of co-opted the idea. Yeah. Which is, we authors do that. Now, if I, if somebody had drawn what I, what I was, if let's say, now in Kira's case, she's fused to two fans together that don't cross very much and made a logical deduction based upon fusing two cannons. Um, if I were to write in that verse, I would credit and give her inspiration credit for figuring that out, right? Um, but I agree that a lot of the, the the conclusion about what the One Ring is is logical once you bring those two pieces of canon together. Um, to give another example, there is um, one of the authors that I inspired me to want to write Tony with other people, various other people, is Shade Shifter. Um, she's the first person I read to write Tony other, specifically Tony Steve, which is Mothership. Um, now, the first story I read of her, she posted it, um, and in her author notes, it says something along the lines of that she's surprised that there isn't this pairing out there because they're in the same universe, and it seems obvious. Okay? Now, I totally credit her with inspiration for making it a banging pairing, you know, giving the, you know, giving that mm. pairing a jump start in a in an epic way. Um, inspired me to want to go and cuz she you know, when somebody writes a new pairing in a way that's really appealing, writing a new pairing in a way that's unappealing is not particularly inspiring. But when somebody writes a pairing in a way that makes you just want to climb all over that pairing, um, that is and I would I thank thank her for the inspiration. I cannot thank her. There, there is no idea craft in the fact that she noticed that they're in the same universe. That's just, That's just a, a fact. fact. That's just a fact. And I, I'm not dissing her to say that she didn't come up with that idea. I'm sorry, the creators of the NCBS came up with the idea that those two people are in the same universe. So um, it's not idea craft that she noticed that they're in the same universe. But the she paired them like a boss. <laughs> yeah, the idea craft is what the fuck she did with it. So it is not an insult to anybody. It's not an insult to any writer to say that the logical conclusion that they're basing their story on, that they, that was their starting point, that was their what-if point, that that bit of logic is not part of their idea craft. It's like logic, is, it just, it's not the same thing. So, I don't know, so we took that really negatively. I didn't think it particularly needed a lot of explanation, what I meant by logic isn't idea craft. Um, but sometimes it leads to it because you're watching a TV show or a movie and they do the credit roll and you're going, well, if I take that, that, that event to its logical conclusion, this is what's going to happen. And I think it would be interesting to do a jumping off what if point from there. So logic can lead to idea craft. Right? You draw logical conclusions, you figure out the repercussions, ramifications, whatever, 
And you do a what if, you do a jumping off point, you do a change, you have a moment of change from that point. But the logical conclusion itself isn't an idea. I'm just saying. You can send me as many more emails as you want. You're not going to convince me. <laughs> I remember on Live Journal once saying that, um, that someone's sexuality is fundamental to their character. And I got this long, ridiculous, ridiculous email about how I, how could I possibly say that um, because it's true. Your sexuality is a fundamental part of you as a human being. The sex you have, the sex you want to have, the sex you don't have, the sex you never want to have, all of that is fundamental to who you are. So when you change a character's orientation in in a fic, when you change their gender, when you change um, who they are, when you make them submissive, sexually submissive, when they aren't in canon, all of these things impact who they are as a character, and it changes them fundamentally. But they couldn't handle that shit. The fact is, whether you never want to have sex or you want to have all the sex, it it impacts you as a character. Right. It, it has to. It has to. I mean, the thing is, you can draw it. Now, I see people kind of reverse engineering stuff, and, like, they'll take somebody's behavior in canon and reverse engineer it to be the reason they behave that way is because they're hiding something about their sexuality. So, like, overcompensation with women is actually latent homosexual tendencies, whatever. You see that a lot. That is not um, exactly an original plot device. And I'm not saying it's a bad plot device, but you see that, right? Um but in, in, it, in that way, you're still going to Kira's point. It is fundamental. You're doing a different interpretation of their behavior, but it is still fundamental. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't need to explain their behavior. Don't be contradictory. And the, the, the person was like, well, you know, sex doesn't define us. Actually, it does. We wouldn't spend quite so much time talking about it if it didn't. If it didn't. Um, your but sexuality you is a defining characteristic, no matter what it is. Whether you're asexual, demisexual, pansexual, bisexual, homosexual, heterosexual, etc., sexual. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm not being flippant. You, I'm just saying, whatever you, you are, it impacts you. If you've taken the time to figure out what you are, it's had an impact on you. I'm gonna throw some I'm gonna throw some logic at you guys. If you've taken the time to figure out what you're where you are in, in the spectrum, then it's had an impact. You're, it it's not it's not a non issue. But feel free to write a world where it is a non issue. That would be interesting. But your characters are not gonna be the same. Because you can't have people who grow up in a world where sexuality is an issue and there are certain things that are taboo and throw them into a world where sexuality is not an issue and everybody just kind of does what they want with who they want, how they feel, provided there's consent, and have them not be somewhat different. Well, Ty Zibon is they a perfect behave. example of that. Huh? Ty Zibon is a perfect example of that. Yeah, it is. I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm just saying that I had to invest a lot in 
character development and, and timelines and character profiles um, to determine how how they would be because they are different. John's a whole new animal in um, Ties That Bind. He had to be. Yeah. Because you have to look at what's in, what's we talked we've talked about this before about like what is core in a character, um, what is the uh, what, we, we did this in the whole new world challenge. Um, mm-hmm. We we talked a lot on terms of craft. We focused on figuring out what the essence of a character is, and then extrapolating how they'd be different in a different environment. And some characters that's harder to do that with. That once you break out break apart the parts that are shaped by the world around them. Um, you wonder what they really are like. What is their core? And when you build up the new character, they come out very differently. So Rodney's a character that is, I think would be easier to extrapolate and have him seem somewhat familiar, whereas John would come out very differently. It was hard work. I think a lot of people just miss that be. character work in Ties That Bind because of all the pornographic sex. <laughs> Filthy. Oh, my God. Yeah, it is filthy, but, you, but you, it was also a lot of work. <laughs> it was a lot of work, but you know, when you when you take a character who one one of the easy, some of the easiest characters to, in, in my opinion, to take from one world to the other and have them seem familiar are intellectuals. The more intellectual they are, the easier it is to make them seem familiar, because they're going to be they're still going to be smart in the next universe. Characters that don't have that some sort of huge defining trait like that tend to be less familiar when you reconstruct them. Even if you know at the core that you've got the core essence of them down, to the reader they might seem the biggest difference. Yeah, Rodney, John's night and day for me. John's yeah, night and day I agree. John is the biggest difference. But, I mean, John and all of your Johns are very different. Your John and what might have been is very different from your John and Ties at Bind is very different from your John in um, Landy and Legacy. Um, and rightly so. And Rodney is the one – Rodney is big, very different as well, but he also feels more familiar because of that core of intellectualism that we are familiar with from him. He's still smart, Right. It's a and little he's bit still harder. sarcastic. Right. <laughs> John's defining traits are still there too, but they are not as prominent as Rodney's intelligence and his sarcasm. So, um, Writing that <laughs> AU like ties it bind is, is a lot of work um, in the character arena because you do want to create characters that fit your world building but also resonate with your reader as familiar. And so a lot of people think that the John in Ties That Bind is the hardest I've ever written, and they're wrong. Oh, it's what might have been. Oh, yeah, it absolutely is what might have been. No joke. Yeah. John and John and Ties That Bind the Pussycat in comparison. Um Now, they'd both go to war and kick some ass, but it's different. Oh, yeah. John, and what, John I wrote what might have been before I read Ties at Bind. They were both up when I started reading your work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ties at Bind was in process, but it, you were quite a bit into it. Um, 
And um, there was no doubt in my mind that the scary John was the one in what might have been. John in, in ties the fine was fierce, but John in what might have been was terrifying. He's lost a lot. Mm-hmm. And he's um, he's viciously invested in protecting what he has. Um, and um, he considers murder a solution. It is a solution. Yeah. <laughs> it may not be a social, socially acceptable solution. A viable solution. solution. Um, it, so there is a difference between them. Um, and yes, they both kill in the course of the stories. But um, John and what might have been kills in a way that's um, a little different. Yeah. And that was important to me when I was um, designing the character in Ties That Bind. I didn't want to retread the one that I had written in what might have been. Um, and I wanted to keep his, his core. I don't honestly think the one that feeds, the, the John that feeds the rapist to the shark is, is harder than the one in what might have been. I mean, the one, the John and the shark short story didn't enjoy killing that rapist. The John and what might have been would have. He would have enjoyed it a lot. And he probably would have stabbed him a few 20, 30 times before he dropped him in the water. I'm just saying. That's the difference. He'd have been amused and pleased with himself. Not resigned and furious the way the one in um, that short story was. Actually, to my read, hmm. the way I just, my interpretation of the characters, um, John and Ties It Fine, of your three big epic, your three big stories, um, Ties It Fine, Sentinels of Atlantis, and What Might Have Been, oh, those are the three biggest, right? I think so. Right. Um, and then, then Lanty and Legacy I, would be, I don't down there. I think, and I'm not saying gentle. I'm not saying he's gentle at all. But the gentlest, the the softest John to me is the ties defined John of those three. Um, you may view it differently, but I view what might have been being the hardest. Um, Sentinel is Atlantis, um, and it, it's just I think just because it's the Sentinel that Sentinels to me are very black and white, um, and John is like an apex Sentinel. Um, that I read, I I read him as being a, a harsher John than the, and because it, I would agree with you on their outward reactions, but I do think that when it comes to vulnerability, that the John in Sentinels of Atlantis um, is the most vulnerable. He's also well, the one who's think, open, the most open emotionally. Yeah, I think I think that the. I would, I would, yeah, I could see that because of the whole, just the very nature of the dynamic between a sentinel and a guide and um, his abilities he's had his whole whole life. But they're all familiar, even if they're different. And that's one of the things I think that's really important about character craft is that you figure out what is the essence of a character 
and preserve it while still altering. Um, now, certainly you could write circumstances that would obliterate the essence of your character, but I've never been interested in that kind of dystopian story. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I can't read them. I don't want to write them. So It's not my jam. You do you, but not me. But that is a fundamental, um, especially when you're writing in fan fiction, if you want to keep your characters on point. You need to know what their essence is, and you need to respect that essence. Um, John, at his heart, is very protective, and he's very loyal, and he's very willing to make the sacrifice play. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't tend to write him suicidal, even if I joke about it, because I don't think he is. Yeah, it's easy to make John a sentinel because the way we, the way at least my head headcanon for sentinels is pretty much fits John. Um, Everything for the tribe. Right. When I was trying to pick out who would be the sentinel in um, my two stories um, over the summer, I, um, with, with Harry and Hermione, I can see either one of them in the role. I mean, it's, it's, I, I've written both and, um, it's it's not, you know, but when it comes to um, Draco and Harry, I was trying to picture Draco as a guide, and I just can't do it. I keep trying, because I, I think that it might be easier to write if Harry's the Sentinel, but I can't. <laughs> I can't picture Draco as a guide. And it's not about his character being, you know, not having empathy or whatever, because the fact of the matter is, is that Draco in canon is very emotional. He's very empathetic to his mother's circumstances. He's, um, he's, he's petrified. And so he's not stoic by any stretch of the imagination. He's not emotionless. Um, and so I'm not seeing him as being incapable of having empathy. I'm just having a hard time seeing him as anything but a sentinel headcanon that, that he would be a sentinel. Even though I, I do I have an go, idea I, where he's a guide. I don't, I just, I it just I, when I started plotting. Go ahead. I think I could go either way with him, but that's purely an intellectual thing. Um, sometimes you don't know for sure until you get into the writing and you start going, I tend to see him more as a sentinel, um, but I, th- I think I could go either way, but it's like one of those things I really do have to get into the writing to see how it would feel. Cause sometimes you get into the writing and you go, eh, no. <laughs> this does not work. Um, it doesn't help. Usually I'm, usually I'm better at knowing for sure before I dig into a Sentinel Guide story. I have a better feel for it, but with him, I, and honestly, if I were to make him a guide, it, he would have to be raised differently. Right. But yeah, so that'll be. Um, yeah. <laughs> I tried plotting with him as the guide, and I just could not plot it. Maybe I could plot it if they were older. And he's not under Lucius's control when he comes online. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some. Way, I think there's some ways you could work with it. Like if he, um, maybe that there's. You know, you could, it could be like a tweak in the world building where if, like, somebody's in an unsafe environment, they're not going to come online. 
Um, like in one of the stories, the story I'm writing where Tony Stark is a sentinel, I'm having him not come online. So I was thinking, like, the whole experience in um, Afghanistan is, like, ideal for a sentinel to come online, except for the injuries. And so that's the way I'm kind of tweaking the world is that um, him coming He was too injured to come you know, online. Yeah, with that, with that thing in his chest. I mean, it, it would be sort of like a self-protective thing. Like the Sentinel's not going to come online if they're immediately going to zone on pain or um, the sensation of that thing in his chest. And I'm having him not come online while he had palladium in his system either um, because the Sentinel's not going to come online while they're being actively poisoned. Because it, it would be sort of like they're not going to come online if it's going to immediately throw them into a catatonic state because they're zoning out on um, what's happening in their own body. So that actually um, makes a lot of sense because what good is a sentinel who can't function? Right. So I'm having him, you know, wait till he's in a better place physically. It's like, I think that the circumstances sort of set up for him to come online in um, Afghanistan. And it's just kind of like simmering um, under the surface for his body to be in the right state to handle it. So I kind of like in my mind, I imagine his son, his spirit guides kind of stalking him. Um, once it was sort of like he was in the right place, I guess you could say spiritually to be a sentinel, ready to go after and embrace taking care of the tribe. Um, and then he doesn't actually come online until um, his body is in a place to do, to, to handle the responsibility he's about to get. So um, that's kind of the way I kind of do that. So you could, I mean, I can do that. I think with Draco being a guide is that in the, in the course of his life younger, that it wasn't safe for him to come online as a guide. And so he didn't, it would just be a, like a little bend in the world building thing that, you know, Sentinels and guides don't guides don't come online if they're immediately going to be in an empathic um, nightmare. That would that would also apply to a hair to Harry living with the Dursley. Yeah. Yeah. Now, mind you, my one sentinel idea for young Harry coming online as a as a guide is him coming online actually, but in that circumstance. But again, it's just the case of how your world building is crafted. Um, is that the one with the tiny unicorn? Because I'm looking forward to the tiny unicorn. That is the little unit, the unicorn, the little baby unicorn that goes and gets help. Um, and that's the case of him coming online to get him help. Um, so I'm looking um, forward to the bossy little unicorn it's not clear in canon um, if Jim flipped online when he was injured he he wasn't rescued from the Chopek no he came online while he was with the Chopek he was stranded in Peru and came online in Peru although there's kind of inferences in canon or implications in canon, things you can infer, that he had sentinel traits growing up and suppressed them. But he was online with the Chopek. He suppressed And then his rescue when he was suppressed. He He suppressed suppressed his senses when he was rescued. Right. It had nothing to do with him being injured. It had to do with him being out in the jungle. Um, That he functioned as a sentinel while he was at the Chopek. So, um, 
and then he, his senses just started coming back again. He couldn't control them. So the world building around Jim and his senses is actually a little bit inconsistent, um, the way they reveal the details in canon over time. And um, and it, it's not terribly it's not, not terribly logical, but the part he, he's not he doesn't come online because of an injury. No, that's not as far as I know. That's not anywhere in canon. I do have one where he comes online because he was shot. He was shot and he was in an isolated location and no one knew where he was. And he comes online. Back online from when he was online with the show pick. It's called Forget Me Not. I, th- I believe it's an EAD. Okay. And it's where he was oh. in um, He was in the show but He was in uh, Peru with Blair. And when they rescued him, they shot Blair because they thought Blair was a native. And he thought Blair was dead, and his sentinel um, retreated. But then he gets shot on duty, and um, Blair is hovering in the background. He's with the FBI, and he's kind of waiting for his sentinel to come back because Jim didn't remember him when when they met again. Yeah, Jim was very adept in canon at suppressing his memories and his senses. Mm -hmm. He was very adept at avoiding what he was. It speaks to an abused childhood. Yeah, it does. Yeah, in canon... If they did that, they never outright say. Yeah. The implication in canon was that he came online in in Peru because of the isolation, but he was living with the Chopek. Um, But canon also talks about him having advanced senses as a child, and that wasn't due to isolation. So again, canon is very open to interpretation about Jim's senses and what the point of them was, and um, when they manifested and when they didn't and why it because it's inconsistent and they never really connect the dots um, you can make a lot of cases um, to interpret it kind of how you will because um, Fanon's really good at filling in the spots like you know the whole guide thing doesn't actually exist in canon I mean I think no, only one person yeah. mentions the guide once the entire series and it's not yeah, even it's like, considered a, a serious thing yeah. Yeah. Um, no, Jim. Jim was in. Jim was in Peru for quite. Wasn't he in Peru for like eighteen months or something? Yeah, he it was, was a long injured time. Injured in the helicopter. He was injured in the helicopter crash. That's not. But but he wasn't. He was there long enough to have well recovered from. Um, and he was acting as that. their sentinel. Yeah. He and and um, Incacha was fu- functioning as his guide. So. He was. I don't remember exactly how long he was in Peru, but I thought it was quite a long time. It was like a year and a half um, that he was there. So he wasn't injured the whole time he was there. He was. He was actually out in the jungle functioning as their sentinel when he was found and rescued against his will. <laughs> how dare! How dare you rescue me? We have like ten minutes, but you know, the basic. Dig into your basics. Basics are important. They're important for you. Don't have to master to be a writer, because nobody. What is there's some quote about that? I've posted it on my timeline before. We're all apprentices in a craft where that where no one is a master. Um, and that's true. I'm, 
There's, yeah, I'm serious when I say that I want to learn every time I go out of the gate. That that is my goal. I want to learn every single time I go out of the gate because that's the point are, of my craft. Is keep learning, but everybody, everybody, I think everybody should keep that apprentice mentality. Is there's always room to learn, there's always room to grow. Your style will evolve. I mean, I could, I could go from where I am now to describing the wainscoting. That could happen. That could be an evolution in my style. I don't see it happening. If it happens, possible. I'm going to be getting her some therapy. So you don't worry, you guys. I got it covered. <laughs> I'd be like, girl, Wait. what did you? What happened? Did you? Did you have another head injury? What happened to you? Julie, you're a um, couple girl. <laughs> but but there are there's a difference I'll get between Goldberg on your ass. There's a difference between learning the ongoing learning you do as an apprentice in your craft and knowing the fundamentals. And like nobody wants, nobody learns how to knit and just, you know, does one stitch or crochet and just does one stitch. You don't ever wind up with a product, right? You you just, there's, there's like no craft besides writing where people think they don't have to learn the basics. Um, The foundational skills, right? Um, and I think it's a small but very vocal minority who think this shit. Yeah, I hope it's a small. For some reason, in fandom, people think that you should just don't worry about the fundamentals. Not even I'm not talking about the basics. Don't worry about the fundamentals. Just write and post, and yes, you should do. If you want to do that, fine. But at some point, I have to question: Are you what? What what is your? What are you trying to do? I mean, if you actually want to learn how to write, ignoring the fundamentals is not any kind of indication of that. And the basics that people need to wrap their head around, you know, start with point of view. You've got to get point of view down. And some people will continue to labor with point of view, um, and that's fine. It's a struggle for, for people. It is a struggle. And you do, with every, with any subject, I don't care what it is, with commas, you will continue to work on commas your entire writing career because commas are as much art as they are anything else because they are about shaping um, the tone. Punctuation is about, it gives Punctuation is it gives gives language it makes it breathe, and wrong punctuation can shut it down fast. So, but it's very difficult to just get it all. So you'll continue to learn, and point of view you'll continue, but get the basics of point of view down because that's fundamental, that's foundational to your craft. Get get the base, get tense down. Figure out dialogue mechanics. Figure out how to write dialogue which means no two people talking in one paragraph, which means how you close out, um, how you put on a dialogue tag properly. I mean, it's not, these are not, it's not a lot of subjects. It's actually very little. You know, like I've told people before, no commas are better than wrong commas. Then figure out a couple of the basic commas. I have a favorite book on point of view, and it's listed in um, in the forum, I believe. I'm trying to find it on Amazon, but I should have just gone over to the forum. Oh, it's craziness. Um, um, but I highly recommend you read um, th- this book that I have. I'm going to tell you in just a minute what it's called. Surely. Um, there's a topic in the forum called Writing Basics, um, and it's in the reference desk. 
um, and it has various um, stuff on it. And I believe I have a section of... Um, hmm. I would call Plot and Structure by James Scott Bell that I highly recommend you read it. But there's another one on Point of View, and I can't remember what what the name of it is. If you've never read On Writing by Stephen King, I highly recommend that one as well. Here it is. Characters, Emotions, and Viewpoint by Nancy Kress. It is excellent on Point of View, and it... um, That's a long-ass, terrible link. See if that one works. Oh, no, that doesn't work. Um, Also, a very basic book that you can get for free online is, I think, is The Elements of Style by William Strunk. Yes, you can. And there is a PDF on the form for that. Yeah. So if you haven't read The Elements of Style, it is a very short guide to formatting basic writing basics. Okay. That is that is the first thing you should read before you post something. And it is not like you're committing to the Chicago Manual of Style, folks. It is, it is a very tiny booklet. Okay. Um, the Elements of Style is, is, is foundational reading for any writer, in my opinion. You need to read it. You need to understand what it says. If you don't understand what it says, what it's talking about, Google the ter- Google the subject, ask on the forum. Um, I get all notifications of new topics and certainly grammar and punctuation questions I try to get on and ask. Not that many people ask them, but I do try to get over there and ask them, answer any grammar or punctuation questions people ask. Um, and there's lots of references online for any, although I will tell you, you will find conflicting information on reputable sites. From one reputable site to another reputable site, you will find different answers. And it somewhat depends upon what style guide and what methodology they're using. Some people are referencing from like APA, which is like where you see newspapers written from. Some people may be referencing from the style guide that the people use for technical writing. Some people may be talking from Chicago Manual of Style. Um, and it all depends upon what you're trying to do as to which answer is the one you need. So um, if you're writing fiction, you really should be going more towards Chicago Manual of Style. Okay, that's that's the gold standard for most publishers. So. You don't really need to care about what's in the other ones if you're writing fiction. But start with Elements of Style by William Strunk. It's just, it's it's a great short, covers most, most of the basics, not all, but most of the basics. And there's just not really a good excuse for not reading some of this stuff and knowing some of the stuff if you want, if you want to write. If you just, we've talked about that a lot of our craft shows are not targeted at, um, people who just want to get the next thing up and get feedback. If that's you, you do you. We really are not talking to you, so don't feel judged, okay? Please don't email me. <laughs> Please don't email us. Um, if you don't want to grow you, or change, that's on you. Don't worry about it. Yeah. 
But if you have a question, if you have a question, or even if you think I've mi- I'm wrong about something or Kira's wrong about something, I don't mind being challenged if you're nice about it. You're welcome to post it publicly, and we can have a debate. But um, or if you or if you've got information that will educate me, I have no problem with learning new things. I really love that. I love to learn new things and grow my craft. So feel free to share that. But just, you know, coming at me just like I fucked up about something I said and kind of with hostile intent or, you know, with the intent of schooling me with that kind of patronizing tone, that's really annoying and it's really not necessary. Yeah, if you try to school me in an email, I'm probably going to cuss you out. I'm just going to, no, I am going to cuss you out because Jilly's a nice one. (laughs) I'm not nice. I never pretended to be. I put a link for the Elements of Style by Strunk and White, the PDF, on the um, on the podcast, and um, also in the uh, chat room and on the forum. And I highly recommend you read it. And we're down to forty-two seconds. So say good night, Julie. Good night, everyone.